In this episode of the Cyberay Podcast, we sit down with Chris Kubeka, the owner and CEO of Hypasec. Chris is an author of multiple books on computer science and penetration testing and has given countless talks across the globe on the subject. Speaking with Cyberay's VP of Content and Community, Leif Jackson, they talk about her newest book, Hack the World with OSINT. Hi, Chris. Uh, super, super excited to have you here. Uh, so, hi guys, Leif Jackson here. Uh, Chris Kubeka, CEO of Hypasec. Um, excited to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here yeah. from uh, sunny Amsterdam. Absolutely. All the way to here. Thanks for coming. Uh, what brings you in today? Uh, well, uh, doing some work on a course for Cybrary, as well as some other work during this uh, Washington, D.C. visit. Oh, cool. So, h- how'd you get into cybersecurity originally? So I originally got into cybersecurity because my mother was a robotics programmer on an industrial automation system to uh, produce uh, cars for digital corporation back in the day. Okay. And she was a single mom, didn't have any money for babysitting, so she would bring me into work uh, while she worked and just set me in front of a green screen computer. And I was able to learn BASIC by the time I was six. Uh, BASIC is a programming language. Mm-hmm. And I, I was absolutely fascinated with the fact that I could do things with the computer and it would do the things I wanted it to do. So, uh, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed uh, computers. Um, unfortunately, when I was 10, I got into a bit of trouble with them. But when I turned 18 and I was allowed to use computers again, then I started working for the U.S. Air Force. Wow. Um, I guess there's two kinds of people in this world. There's those that get told by computers what to do, and then those that tell computers what to do, huh? Yes, and I prefer the second. Absolutely. Yes. So now, uh, tell me about your company. Well, my company uh, does a lot of uh, government-level advisement mm-hmm. for various parliaments and governments uh, that are a trading block and close allies, as well as high-level incident response for things that, that could involve nation-state cyber malicious activities. Gotcha. And and you hire a good number of people in 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 your um, in your company now. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the kinds of skills that you look for, uh, particularly for our audience who a lot of are looking into get into the space or develop themselves within the space. Well, I look for a variety of different types of people because each incident requires uh, different disciplines within the mm-hmm. field, and uh, I don't primarily look for someone who has a pure mathematics or computer science degree. I actually look for individuals who have more, I would say, uh, expanded experience and uh, don't necessarily look for someone who absolutely must have a degree either. But I look at their passion, uh, their uh, talent, and their ambition, mm-hmm. and uh whether or not they are continually, uh, continually uh, educating themselves, because this is one of those fields where you constantly have to stay up to date on different things and be willing to learn new things. Um, some of my best hires have been people with history degrees, journalism degrees, huh. uh, music theory okay. is very big, and rarely actually have I ever hired somebody who has... Um, say all the uh, very, very nice degrees on paper uh, because many times those individuals don't actually have real-world experience or they don't know how to communicate uh, in a method where you can take technical information and give it to management or executives, which is very, very important to get your point across with. 
Gotcha. So in terms of those unique backgrounds, like what, what do you see in people uh, before you hire them? Well, I like to try to figure out what their real passion is mm -hmm. uh, discipline-wise. Uh, for example, I was interviewing an Italian uh, gentleman, and his eyes lit up when I mentioned reverse engineering. And then he started cool. rambling about how much he just loved it. And you could see the smile all over his face and body. And I was like, well that's the area that you want to learn on and you already have a, a bit of basics. So we're going to actually concentrate on that because I know that you will excel at learning that to a senior level in a fairly uh, quick time frame. And he did. That's interesting. And so a lot of what we, you mentioned is like mu musicians are actually pretty good in the space. Do you have any theories <laughs> as to why that is? Well, uh, it does definitely change your perspective. Yeah. Uh, I myself uh, play quite a few musical instruments for woodwind and brass, but I found that there's a propensity towards string instruments, whether that be piano, guitar, or huh. everything in between. And it, it just seems to uh, change the way that you think if you actually have experience playing a musical instrument. Gotcha. Um, and... In terms of how people have taught themselves from, from, from your employees, like how, how have you seen them develop themselves over time? Well, I've seen a bit of a mix mm -hmm. uh, because it can be quite expensive to get into the field to start learning if you're only concentrating sure. on uh, a U.S.-based university course or some of the commercial training courses can be very, very, very expensive. And uh, I've seen successfully a mix between um, places like Cyberry, books, um, peers, and uh, CTFs okay. are very, very big. Gotcha. Um, so just switching gears a bit, uh, you have a couple books that, uh, that you've recently written. Can you just talk a little bit about what those are? We have one right here um, <laughs> and, and, and who they are for. Okay, therefore, the practitioner mm -hmm. uh, level of person who is looking at digital security. Okay. And I, I say digital security because that also involves IT, IoT, and ICS SCADA systems mm -hmm. as well, because they're all digitized now. Uh, the first book uh, was Down the Rabbit Hole and OSINT Journey, which uh, one of the main targets was the Panama Papers law firm and showing how many vulnerabilities uh, were available, um, but also looking at uh, some other targets to have a bit of fun and looking at about 20-some different tools of how you can accomplish different tasks. And the book that I most recently published in January uh, is called Hack the World with OSINT, and it takes you on a journey uh, over IT, IoT, and ICS protocols, and also explains the differences in the protocols. Because, uh, for example, ICS protocol is not directly uh, like TCP IP. You have mm -hmm. to use different tools and methods of communicating with it. However, uh, these different types of protocols are everywhere uh, in the production environment, whether you're talking about water, electricity, building control systems. And when these protocols were originally developed, they did not consider any sort of security. So, for example, the Modbus protocol <clears throat> will take a command from anywhere at any time without any authentication because there is no authentication on the protocol. Um, so you, you mentioned a little bit about ICS controls. Uh, that's the course that you're, you're doing yeah. with us. So can you tell me uh, a few of the trends in the space that you're seeing nowadays? 
Well, uh, it used to be that ICS production environments were purely ICS production environments. Mm -hmm. But now to be able to modernize them and digitize them, a lot of IT and IoT systems are being added into these environments. And that can be a good thing, but uh, unfortunately it can be a very bad thing. Um, it is now exposing these uh, different types of ICS protocols to a wider audience, as well as introducing IT and IoT risks into a very critical environment. Right. Uh, can you talk about some of those risks? Well, the main goal for an ICS control network is for availability. So uh, many times there's no encryption because that can cause some latency. Sure. And the command and also a lot of credentials are either very weak so that they can be quickly typed in or shared amongst a lot of engineers, which means there's not a lot of uh, good audit trails and things of that nature. So when we start introducing uh, something that might be connected to the internet or outside that control network, then somebody could uh, take advantage of that control network and change it around. And I've seen that on many, many occasions. Gotcha. Are there particular verticals that where you've seen that more frequently? Um, I've seen it. Uh, there are several trends, especially in the United States, about attacking different types of water systems. Huh. And that could be uh, your drinking water systems, reservoirs, uh, all the way up to hydroelectric dams which has been very problematic, uh, as well as some of the electrical grid as well. Gotcha. Um, yeah, shutting down the electrical grid or poisoning the Mississippi River would be pretty bad for that, the U.S., wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be a bad thing, <laughs> a very bad thing. I, I myself like the uh, electricity to work when I flip on the switch, and I, I like the idea of clean water coming out of the tap. Yeah. Uh, so, so who's responsible for protecting it? Is it is it business or is it government? Right, like so, and does that vary by control system? Well, it, it can vary a bit. Uh, the majority of control systems are actually privately owned in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, think about all the different types of uh, electrical companies or water companies. A uh, major water company here in the U.S. is actually a firm out of the United Kingdom that's privately owned. And uh, what the government tries to do is uh, they try to have enough resources to be somewhat proactive when it comes to critical infrastructure like water and electric and so Mm -hmm. forth. But uh, it's not actually their responsibility to secure those particular private systems. Interesting. Uh, They do try to reach out and have a lot of public-private partnerships. Okay. But uh, it's still the responsibility of those particular private companies. And is that largely in the United States or is that true globally? It's true globally. Okay. Are there any countries that are are uniquely t- taking a different position? Uh, there are some. Uh, for example, Japan has now passed a law where they can, in preparation for the Olympics in 2020, yeah. can proactively hack any of their devices and patch them. And they are focusing a lot on critical infrastructure. So they've extended their uh, legal reach to a lot of private companies in Japan. Gotcha. And we'll we'll have to see how that works out for the government to be fixing a lot of different devices. And it sounds like a lot of the uh, problems with the controls or the risks are simple passwords or sharing passwords or those kinds of things. Is that what you've seen in other 
in other systems that you've you've investigated? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So the most uh, juicy juice stuff that I find basically is juicy from, juice. I yeah. love juicy juice. <laughs> <laughs> is a security um, misconfiguration. Okay. Um, so a weak configuration. And there are certain reasons why that used to work in control environments, but uh, that doesn't really work anymore. So, so what do we do, right? I mean, there's, there's, everyone's got 10 devices out there. There's all these endpoints out there. There's so many ways to get in places. Like, what are, how are we actually going to defend ourselves? Well, uh, there, there's several ways. Uh, not every uh, single device has to be directly connected to the Internet. I'll tell you that now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always good to have some sort of stopgap, whether that be a router, a switch, to segment your network. Even at your home, you should be segmenting your network okay. to a certain extent. Um but also, if you can afford it, especially as a business, firewalls are great. They firewalls don't stop cool. everything because obviously there's you, know, you could have a vulnerability on the firewall or that could be misconfigured. But at the same time, if you uh, actually don't connect something directly to the Internet and pass it through a firewall, then... Um, you can minimize a lot of your risks. A lot of uh, different attacks are uh, quite successful because they're finding low-hanging fruit. And there's so much low-hanging fruit out there. That's the problem. Gotcha. Uh, could Jay offer some examples? Um, well, there's a big problem uh, with something called open DNS relays around the world. Mm-hmm. And we had thought that that problem was going away because you can use an open relay for DNS for different types of DDoS amplification attacks. But um, now the trend is there's now, uh, I think the last time I scanned was about a month ago, there are now more DNS servers that are open relays. And that is because of different types of IoT devices. Mm. When they're churned out by the vendors, they are leaving a whole bunch of different ports open using uh, older vulnerable libraries and older Linux kernels. And suddenly things that we haven't been seeing for 15, 20 years sometimes are making a resurgence of those particular vulnerabilities that can be exploited. So kind of bringing things back in style, so to speak. Right. It's like bringing back the Black Plague. <laughs> Yay! Or, or 80s hair or whatever, right? right. I, I mean, one or the other. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's uh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it is. I think on the 16th or the 18th of October, I'll be doing a talk back in the Netherlands on how IoT can be leveraged for cyber warfare. Gotcha. Okay. Well, let's talk about cyber warfare. Um, so you have a lot of experience in cyber warfare. Can you just talk a little bit about your experience and what you're seeing nowadays? Well, we started seeing things uh, early on when I was at Space Command Mm -hmm. and the U.S. Air Force. And then afterwards, when um, I was at Unisys, we started seeing certain trends uh, and who was attacking and what they were leveraging. So back in 2009 in July, I I was able to detect that a whole bunch of higher performance uh, computers uh, around the UK and Europe using uh, higher bandwidth internet connections were infected by a particular type of malware that the North Koreans put out. So then those computer systems leveraging uh, their speed and their performance uh, were then aimed at the South Korean infrastructure to try to take them down as part of a three-wave attack against the uh, South Korean country. 
And in 2012, uh, I was involved with uh, helping to restore international business operations for Saudi Aramco when the Iranians attacked them. And they, again, used a particular type of malware called Shamoon, where we even had a, a, a burning American flag as it was uh, deleting the master boot records of uh, the computer systems that were infected. And uh, these types of trends are getting more and more uh, because it's much easier to launch, quote unquote, a digital bomb from across the world or a different country than it is to send somebody to a physical location. Hmm. And it's still quite easy to attack an organization with a phishing attack. Interesting. Uh, and do you think it'll change the kinds of skills that are being developed in our in our defense industry, for example? Like, um, because a lot of war is now cyber war, right? Yeah. Um, so how do you think it might change? Well, I, I think it's already changing. Mm-hmm. So we have recognition from U.S. Cyber Command and U.S. Army Cyber Command of the particular risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm here on this particular D.C. visit is to be part of the German Marshall Fund's uh, D.C. headquarters uh, discussions and workshop on the uh, joint EU-U.S. response to nation-state-level cyber malicious activities, which involves cyber war. Sure. And we're starting to change that mindset. NATO is now quite involved with it over the past few years, uh, as well as finally the European Union uh, with the not current but the last EU presidency uh, council started uh, highly recognizing it as a, a major problem. So, Yeah. Gotcha. Um, And is this uh, public as well as private uh, industry? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Because the majority of digital assets are owned by the private sector. Sure. Interesting. Um, And um, one of the the pieces uh, of cyber warfare that's really important to companies is, hey, cyber insurance, right? Like I buy this cyber insurance and I'm trying to defend uh, my company against, uh, uh, you know, risks associated with uh, cyber risk, right? But what we're seeing is like cyber war is not covered, yeah. right? So how do you see it kind of hitting uh, the ba- the bottom line of businesses, right? Well, cyber insurance is something that's quite important in the U.S. and uh, the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. as well as a few other countries. And there should be a, a better distinction between, let's say, the North Koreans want to just fund their regime uh, with a piece of malware, ransomware, that I would not call cyber war, mm-hmm. but uh, because the definitions can be very broad, an insurance company could try to deny your claim by saying, oh, it must have been because it was a nation state. However, that's not quite the case. Um, at the same time, if you happen to be involved in a cyber warfare uh, attack, uh, let's say your platform or some of your computer systems are leveraged, uh, because of the particular definition of your insurance company, then you might not have coverage. So uh, one of the problems that we're having with the quote-unquote definition of cyber wars, there's actually no international definition yet. Right. Yeah, that's kind of a problem. It, it's kind of a problem. Not even with the UN <laughs> is there a definition per se. So you're like, wow, what is this? I don't know. Maybe we'll call it cyber war. <laughs> And so how, how do you see companies dealing with this? Uh, you know, maybe we can go by industry, you know, so in financial services, like if the financial services sector is attacked via a nation state, 
you might not be covered, right? So like, yeah. how, how are they kind of defending against it and, and protecting their bottom lines? Well, with the financial industry, uh, they actually are ahead of the game. So mm -hmm. several years ago, they set up uh, information sharing platforms amongst themselves. Because huh. uh, it's uh, nowadays, uh, you can start seeing trends of which areas of the financial markets are being hit. Okay. And they need to communicate with each other. Uh, there are other industries that try to do something similar, but there's still a lot of competition between them. Sure. So it can be very problematic. For example, the aviation industry has an ISACA uh, here in the U.S. and in Europe, but uh, because of the competitive nature between Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and Airbus, they don't all communicate. Interesting. Uh, how about in like the, the utility sector? Uh, they do have information sharing platforms, but they still are not as communicative as, say, the financial uh, markets. Okay. So information sharing is obviously critical in order to defend against everything. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I'll give mm -hmm. you a good example. When I was at Aramco, we had an anonymous uh, campaign against the uh, petrol industry called Op Petrol. And they uh, targeted Aramco, Razgas, and Qatar, mm -hmm. uh, part of ExxonMobil International Operations, um, uh the Malaysian National Oil Company and one of the Russian oil companies. And although we did not have a formalized agreements between ourselves because we were competitors, uh, we still utilized our network to keep communicating during the series of attacks to make sure that we could see what was coming and warn each other. Gotcha. And obviously that happened also very recently uh, in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Um, so. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that might have happened and what are some things they could have done to prevent it? Well, uh, since late last year, um, and especially picking up steam this year, there have been uh, several drone attacks yeah. against uh, Saudi Aramco. Yeah. And this is very problematic because this is a new type of threat that was not uh, actually planned for. Sure as well as uh, certain rebel groups getting a hold of rockets and firing them at the infrastructure, which can be a very bad thing. Um, now, there are a couple of things that can be done when it uh, involves drones. Uh, drones, unless they're a military-grade drone, is actually using what's called the civilian segment of the GPS spectrum. And you can actually manipulate the signal to throw off a drone. The Russians right. are very, very good at that. Uh, they actually have a in, electronic warfare center set up in Syria that has been uh, messing with the civilian GPS portion. Huh. Uh, however, it's had some negative consequences. Uh, so one of the Israeli airports falls in that sphere because it's a, like a site-to-site -site with, with limited um, range. And uh, because uh, pilots use the civilian portion uh, for commercial aircraft, uh, they can no longer uh, take off or land just using the GPS. So they have to have a, a different type of training to make sure that they can do manual takes, takeoffs and landings at those airports in Israel. Interesting. But uh, it diverts the drone attacks, which have hit uh, the Russians on several occasions as well. Gotcha. So Russia is somewhat leading the pack there. Yes, they've actually offered to help Saudi Aramco uh, with their drone problem. 
by setting up something similar for them. Wow, that's cool. Um, so I guess there is collaboration. Well, it's one of these things where it's kind of necessary because uh, about 25% of the world's energy in one way, shape, or form comes from Saudi Aramco. Yes. So it's kind of important to protect a 25% of the world's energy. Yeah. That would be very bad if it went away. Yes. Yes, it would. <laughs> we don't want that. It would be very bad on a number of levels. On a number of levels, yes. Because think about all the things that are made from petroleum, from fertilizer to clothing to everyday items to medical supplies. And it's not just putting uh, gasoline in your tank. Sure. Absolutely. Um, you, you mentioned space a little bit as well. So can you talk about your work at, in, in the space field? Um, yeah, so I started in the space field with the U.S. Air Force's uh, Space Command at Buckley mm -hmm. and uh, over in Colorado. And my primary responsibilities involved the security of the command and control systems and interfacing wow. a lot with my first SOC, a space operations center, and dealing with solar <laughs> weather as well. And um, A lot of our audience is in a different form of SOC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, in April, I was at the Space uh, Command headquarters for a particular uh, closed conference with a whole bunch of uh, uh, very interesting people. And uh, we did some work on a... Um, a couple of the problems that we're facing uh, different types of emerging technology. And what I did was in June, I used some of that experience and the University of Oxford and De Montfort University uh, funded a space hackathon at Royal Holloway University mm. in the UK. And what we did was we turned around the grand challenge to a group of PhD students to go, all right, here are some of the problems that we have with existing space and some of the problems that we're having with new space because new space involves industrial IoT systems in space. Yay! Not really. And so, uh, you know, you have to deal with the fact that most uh, space assets do not encrypt still. Right. Because that causes a slowdown in the operations. You're looking for availability in space. And any extra step could be bad, uh, as well as uh, they use a lot of what's called technician backdoors uh, to be able to, just in case, still be able to get into the system if all of the other methods fail. And we've seen that on in regular IT systems posing a lot of problems because it really is a technician right. backdoor. And... Uh, so we've been dealing a lot with space. Uh, last week, I actually did a talk for Cambridge University on responsible innovation for cybersecurity and new space assets, discussing some of these problems and how they can be leveraged by cyber criminal groups to hide malware, like the Turl of malware, or uh, thing that, things that they need to consider before they put something uh, up in space and attach it to a piece of very sensitive legacy equipment. Gotcha. So it's not updated sometimes, and no, you or get patch. You get the or, new black peg, so to speak. Yeah, know, yeah. Coming through there, that makes sense. Yeah. Or one of the uh, bigger challenges is you might have this great idea, and it might be like really fantastic for security, and you and you start researching and developing it, but by the time it's launched in space, it's like two generations backwards. Because it takes time from the idea to paper to actually launching. Gotcha. 
That's interesting. Um, So transportation systems is another area that we talked about. So uh, obviously a massive industrial control system. Absolutely. Um, Can you talk about some of the trends there and ways people are preventing the problems that could happen there? Well, I mean, there, there's a difference depending on the country that you're dealing with. So uh, the United States predominantly has uh, cargo for their railroad systems, not mm-hmm. as much passenger. But the systems and the signaling systems are actually kind of antiquated in mm-hmm. comparison to uh, the Netherlands, for example, or the United Kingdom. And... This can pose a lot of problems because more and more uh, train systems, plane systems, et cetera, are being turned into gigantic computers with all sorts of sensors and things that also can connect to the internet, whether they know it can connect to the internet or not. And uh, in the Netherlands, our train systems are a bit different where they kind of anticipated that this could be a problem. So they went ahead and used a technology from the nuclear industry called a data diode to uh, Mm. restrict things. Uh, It's basically a one-way firewall. And if you were to attack and hack it, you cannot get a shell back because it's only one-way communication. But the U.S., because it's such a bigger location, Uh, There are a lot of different vulnerabilities. Uh, For example, there are switch boxes that you can actually physically plug into in the middle of nowhere, uh, the United States, and look at everything that's going on and maybe even adjust things. So, Gotcha. So it sounds like, I mean, there's a theme here, right? There's a lot of low-hanging, simple fruit out there across each of these control systems that teams should be looking at. Absolutely. Um, the, if we allow people to find this low-hanging fruit, uh, it can be uh, a good thing, well, bad thing for uh, mm-hmm. a curious hacker, somebody who makes a mistake, or for it to be leveraged for crime or uh, for intellectual property and secrets to be stolen from it. And that can be a very bad thing. And <clears throat> if we can cause more effort for the... Uh, average, say, cyber criminal to be able to take advantage of these systems, then they're not going to be as successful and our systems are going to be a lot safer. But we need to get to that particular point where we are uh, a bit more proactive versus reactive in looking at our particular uh, systems across the board. Gotcha. So if you were to recommend for SOC teams out there that might be watching this, like what they can do to defend their companies against these kinds of attacks? What would be the top one, two, or three things that you would recommend? Well, I would definitely recommend proactively looking at open source intelligence gathering, and that uh, involves both uh, people and systems of your company because uh, it's amazing the amount of information that you can find fairly quickly with using low-cost or no-cost tools, Mm -hmm. the same type of tools that an attacker is going to use. But it's in a non-destructive way. You're not uh, pen testing something. You're just looking for information. And you're not harming any particular systems. So that's a very good exercise. And it can save you a lot of grief uh, in the long run. Uh, Another thing is uh, be sure to uh, absolutely understand the importance of training your individuals. Because it's great that they might have a certification 
but what if that certification is five years old sure. and they know about five-year-old attacks? And that's a whole almost two generations in computing. So uh, regular training uh, using various methods is absolutely a necessity. I know a platform for that, by the way. Oh, do you? Yeah. Does it begin with a C? Yeah, just a C. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I forget the last uh, few letters, but yeah. 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 Mm. But it's very important, very, very important to uh, keep training up. Um, and another thing is uh, understand that uh, joining various communities within the security community is very important, whether that is Slack channels, forums, uh, a training platform, uh, looking at uh, security B-sides conferences around the world because they're free. Um, or other like-minded type of conferences. Mm -hmm. um, when you run into trouble, it's uh, great to have the ability to call up a friend and go, listen, I've never seen this type of thing before. Do you have any experience with it? And leveraging that network is very important and extremely helpful. And you cannot leverage a network if you don't have one, but you can get one uh, if you interact uh, with the community and inside the community. Gotcha. Well, yeah, I know a platform that can do all that, actually. It has like two and a half million people. Nice. So, um, yeah, no, that's great. No, and that's great advice for the teams because, they, I mean, it can be tough to decide how what to focus on with so many options out there. Uh, so focusing on, a, on just a few things, it, it, it can really get you a big bang for your buck, so to speak. Absolutely. Um, well, cool. Um, this has been fantastic. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the course that you're developing for us? Uh, yes. So I'm going to be looking at uh, sharing my knowledge mm -hmm. about uh, ICS SCADA protocols and a little bit of industrial IoT systems mm -hmm. because they're different from your regular IT, TCP, IP mm -hmm. uh, networking asset. And uh, the protocols are different. The bridges are different. And their goal is different. Uh, we concentrate a lot on the IT world on uh, confidentiality, but uh, confidentiality doesn't make a power plant run. You need availability. Sure. And understanding why those systems are set up that way and also understanding problems with the protocols. Um, so it's very, very important when you end up at a company that has both a business network and then a production network that you have a good, basic, solid understanding of what you need to do to protect those particular environments. And they're being incorporated more and more. And you don't have to work for an oil company. You can just work for a company that owns their own building and also has building uh, hmm. control systems. Gotcha. Um, is there anything else that I didn't cover that you wanted to... Kind of say the audience. Uh-oh. You would ask me a question. I don't know the answer to it. You had a lot of notes. I did. Yeah. Um, hmm. I don't know. That's good. Yeah. That means I that we covered it all. All right. Yeah. <laughs> We're protecting the world now. That sounds great. Yes. Well, thanks, everybody. I really appreciate you taking the time today, Chris. Uh, thank you for coming in um, and very excited for your course. And, and thank you for, for joining our community and, and, and leading our community. Excellent. Thank you so much. Hey, this is Thor. Thanks for listening to the Cyberry podcast. And make sure to check back next Wednesday for our newest episode.